0: Hey, good morning, Ecclesia. It's so good to see you. I'm here with uh, my dear friend, Drew Jackson, who is the pastor of Hope East Village in New York City. And so he has been so gracious enough to join us and to to open the scriptures with us uh, during our digital gathering this upcoming Sunday. But, you know, normally when we have a guest speaker, we're able to interact with them. We can take them out to lunch after kind of get to know a little bit of what, what makes them tick in this scenario. Obviously it's sort of like bringing in uh, somebody that you have no idea who they are. And so I wanted to just uh, host a conversation. Drew is is one of those people. The first time I met him just has a presence and, and a gravity to him. And uh, just as, as I've been able to get to know him more, I've just seen more and more uh, the deep spiritual well, uh, the deep well of integrity and just really beauty that this man draws from. So I'm so excited to just introduce you to Drew, to Drew, to let you hear from him this week. But I wanted to give you some context around that. So that's really what this conversation is about. So Drew, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, man.
1: Yeah, it's so good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is different, man. This is weird, but <laughs> glad, glad we can still do this.
0: Now, Drew, tell us about the good stuff. Tell us about your family life. A little bit about your church. What's what's been going on? How long have you guys been in New York City? Can you give us a little insight into that?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I am married. uh, My beautiful wife Janae. We've been married for about eight years, and uh, you know we have two five-year-old twin daughters, and uh, we're navigating the virtual school thing right now, which is, you know, it's a handful, but it's all good. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've been in New York for, let's see, uh, we moved. So I was pastoring a church. Uh, I was passing at a church in Pennsylvania prior to us coming to New York city. And I started actually commuting up from, from PA, uh, twice a week in June of 2017. Um, So coming up twice a week, starting to do the early church planning work, gathering, building core team, all that stuff. We we moved our family uh, in January of 2018. Um, And we had and then we launched Hopi's Village in March of 2018. So, yeah, we've been we've been going since then. That's really amazing. The homeschool thing is
0: like no, no joke, right?
1: No joke. No joke. how are you, how would you rate yourself as a uh,
0: <laughs> as a professor of many subjects
1: at home how are we doing there um, the subject so i i mean we have kindergartners so the subject matter is is fine it's just all the other stuff of you know how do you how do you help how do you help five year olds stay focused on a zoom call right how do you how do you help them just yeah remain engaged when like they don't feel like it so that those are the those are the hard things
0: i'm still trying to figure out how to help a 35 year old stay say focus on his, uh, so i have, <laughs> Feeling, no, on feeling that. that i feel that so you've been in the east village tell us about the east village i mean obviously you can it, it's yeah. such a bastion of culture you know throughout the the course of the last several decades and just So give us some insight into what pastoring in that
1: space is like and and just, you know, maybe how crazy it really is. Yeah, no, East Village is a beautiful place, man. It is uh, a beautiful neighborhood where so many different uh, ways of life and so many different cultures come together um, and exist in sort of, you know, a few square blocks. And there's just such a a rich history of art, um, music, and, I mean, even justice movements and resistance in that neighborhood. Um, And so I love being there. One of the things, though, that that we've discovered about the neighborhood is that, like, even though there's so many different people that cross paths in the East Village, like, there's still you have like these segmented parts of the neighborhood that don't really interact with each other. So, uh, the best way to conceive of, you know, to to get a picture in your mind of what it is, is that right on, on the, on one side of the neighborhood, you've got, uh, Facebook's offices. And then on the other end of the neighborhood, you've got the projects. And so that's sort of like everything from Facebook to the projects and everything in between there, that's like the East Village. And, um, you know, so trying to figure out what it looks like to be in that neighborhood, to, to pastor, to church plant, to be the church in that neighborhood is to ask, what does it look like to be the people of God at the intersections of all these things? Mm-hmm. Um, and what does it look like in a neighborhood where those literally on the margins. So the projects are all the way by the river, like they line the river. And so what does it look like to work, to center the voices of those who are literally on the margins of the neighborhood um, and to, you know, to fight with them and for them uh, so that their voices don't get lost. I mean, when I, when I first got to the neighborhood, one of the things that I did was, you know, you do the church planter thing, you spend time, you walk around, you talk to neighbors. Um, And I remember walking down by the projects and I sat and I was, you know, had a conversation with these two older black women who just were sitting out there and we talked for about two hours and they were telling me all about the neighborhood. And, um, but one of the things that they said was, um, they were looking, we're looking out at the projects and they said, you know, we call this the last frontier because they're just pushing us out. They're just pushing us out. And this is all we got left. And um, you know, so it would that's that's some of the stuff that you face in the neighborhood, some of the reality. Um, but yeah, it's it's I could keep going, but there's a lot, yeah. there's a lot of rich stuff and rich history and even even a rich history of faith in that neighborhood where you've got um, I mean, we're just a few blocks away from the Catholic Worker, where, where Dorothy Day started started her movement in the neighborhood in the Lower East Side. So, like, you know, that's kind of the tradition that we're stepping into as well.
0: Yeah, and man, I, I just love. There's a, there's a love for the neighborhood that's just emanating out of what you're saying and appreciation for it. What's yeah, it like man. in that? So you're you're in sort of this paradoxical place, this frontier between these people who really feel like the, the margins just keep moving closer to where they are and then they're being pushed out and then you have this sort of triumphalistic and and again i know we begrudge people for this but they're, they're they have these opportunities so they're moving into this space you're at the intersection of these this really uh, converging narrative what what's it like to pastor in a place like that because on the one hand there's so much that's being lost And on the other hand, there's people feel like, wow, look, the world is at our fingertips. And how do you, how do you help, you know, kind of merge or how do you help, uh, you know, tell a different story in that space?
1: I mean, we're still, we're still early on in the process. I mean, we're, we're only, you know, just celebrated two years, right? So we've, it, it requires a lot of listening. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the posture that we've taken from early on of saying, like, you know, how, it's easy. It's easy for church planters to ride the wave of triumphalism in a neighborhood in a gentrifying yeah. neighborhood. Right. Um, and so what does it look like to not just ride that wave and to just, you know, and to to be a part of pushing out the people who have been there? Right. What how, how do how are we not how are we not a part of that? Um, I, and I think that like the reality of our church is that we, we, we have a mix, but we do have a majority of people who have like moved to the city, right. Who have, th- this isn't the place that they've called home forever. Right. Uh, and, and uh, one of the things though, that we're, that we've been trying to do though, is just to talk, to have conversation, have a regular part of our conversation as a church, be. Just a recognition and this and, and I guess we, we would consider this even part of formation and discipleship is to say like if we're gonna be a church in a place, then we have to recognize that like we're there are those who have been here before us, mm. right? So to to part of honoring God by honoring our neighbor, right, is to is to actually listen to their story. To, have, to, to not come in with our own story and our own agenda of things, but to, to, to recognize that God's already been present here, that Jesus has already been moving and working in this neighborhood. How can we come alongside of uh, the kingdom work that's already happening? Um, not trying to reinvent the wheel. And uh, yeah, just, just trying to learn humility in this thing. Mm. I, I think that's- I <laughs> love really, the way you said that too. Yeah, I think that's key. Learning humility. To learn. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Almost like a skill. I I really love that. It's just again so much of a sense for your church and your community. I wanna I wanna center in on you for just a moment and just you know a little bit about your like your trajectory towards being a, a church planner and a pastor. Um, how, how did God sort of use the uh, so you know talk a little bit about your um, your life leading up to it, sort of a, an understanding of, yeah, this is, I think my vocation, this is what I'm going to pursue with my life. What are some of the key events that led, led up to that?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I grew up in church. Um, I'm the youngest of four boys and we were in church forever, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and I grew up, by the way, I grew up in South Jersey. I grew up in Jersey. So, yes. um, you know, and an Eagles fan. Love. Much love for yes. Jersey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I well, <laughs> I like the Eagles, but my first love is the Packers. So, yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> most recent champions among us am, too. I am a huge Sixers fan, though. So that yes, Ian, Ian knows that. <laughs> but yeah, may they so, come back so, in our day, Lord, do it again. Yeah. Right. We're still trust in the process. Yes, we but, are. Uh, <laughs> um. But yeah. So I, I grew up in church um, and. But I remember being uh, being 11 years old and um, our church was like having a a conference, preacher's conference, whatever. And uh, I don't know, man, like during that, I, I remember going home and I was like laying on my bed. And it was the first time that I ever really recognized or felt like God was speaking to me. Um, and it was very clear and it was very like. I don't know, but but just got this deep sense from the Lord that like, I'm gonna preach. And I didn't, I, and it, it wasn't something that I told anybody. I just kind of held on to that um, for a little while and put it in the back of my mind, but I couldn't shake it. And, uh, but when I went to college, that wasn't my plan. I, I, so I went to University of Chicago to study political science. Um, study political science with a focus in international relations and I was planning on going to law school because I wanted to um I was like maybe I'll do some like foreign policy work or something like that and uh but as I was both in my studies right I'm studying things like you know we're reading books like the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. And we're reading about why wars are breaking out between nations and different global humanitarian crises and things like that. And, and so I'm reading all of this stuff and I, and I'm just like, man, what does, what does Jesus, what does the gospel have to say to any of this? Right. Um, And then I'm looking, I'm living in South Chicago and just wrestling with the realities of that, of the city of like, the the racial and the economic and educational disparities and inequities in the city and asking myself that same question, Jesus, what do you have to say to any of this? Right. Because the gospel that I had been given growing up didn't speak to that. It didn't have anything to say. It was primarily about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. Right. But it didn't have anything to say to any of the broader, you know, stuff that, affects the world and actually has an impact on my life, but I didn't have a, a, a theology for it, right? It wasn't big enough. So um, I started to just go on my own journey of asking Jesus, what, what do you have to say? How, how do we, what does it mean to be peacemakers in the midst of a violent world? Like all these, all these questions that I'm wrestling with and just coming to discover, oh, Jesus actually has a lot to say about this. That, that this gospel of the kingdom of God is big enough for these questions and for these realities. And so um, that actually for me was like this moment where I fell in love with Jesus and the gospel all over again like mm-hmm. in a fresh way. And um, I had a moment where, you know, when uh, you know, when um, when Jesus calls the first disciples and he calls them to drop their nets and come off the boat and come follow him. I felt like I had one of those moments where Jesus redefines my vocation, right? Where yeah. where I wanted to go and do this foreign policy thing and I'm like maybe I'll do this ambassador thing or whatever that looks like and then Jesus was like, "No, you can still do the work of an ambassador, but let me let me change that for you a little bit. You can't mm-hmm. be about doing it any, in any regard be about pushing an American agenda. Let me teach you about the kingdom of God." Right? Mm-hmm. And so there was just this flip for me. Um, And uh, yeah, I ended up pivoting from this, like heading toward law school. And that's when I decided to head to to seminary and um, do, yeah, just do pastoral work and got connected to a church in Chicago, became a pastoral resident there for for a little while. And um, yeah, and then uh, we moved out to LA and I started seminary at Fuller. Uh, and at the same time also was doing campus ministry work with InterVarsity. So, um, that was like, you know, part of the journey in that direction. And then we came back East cause we were, we found out we were having twins and had no family <laughs> on, on the West coast. So that's when we moved back and moved to PA, which is where my wife's family is at. And, um, yeah. And then I told you about pastoring yeah. here in Pennsylvania and then New York. So that's, yeah, it's a little bit of the journey there. Like, so I, I
0: love hearing you're talking about almost almost like a second conversion. You know, Pete Scazzaro talks about Yeah, definitely. It's a part of the Christian life, you know, is yeah. these moments that shake our paradigms but actually invite us like the, 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 it turns out that the deep things of God are calling out to the deep things in us. And it's like mm-hmm. this thing that you were longing for, it turns out that Jesus has fulfillment in his hands all along, but going through the the, the actual trial and the route to get there uh, is often yeah. where so many people stop short. And so I love that you're just kind of a witness on that journey who were some of the the authors or the, the the key figures that you're looking at and you're saying, mm-hmm. okay, this this new and bigger and wider theology is actually plausible because you know I hear what these people are saying and it's resonating. Uh, so who were some of those people?
1: Yeah, that you mean that really sort of Yeah, that, that, just,
0: that were, we're pilgrims on that journey alongside you of, of expanding um, and just deepening your faith.
1: Yeah, man. So. Uh, the first, the first author I read that was really expanding things for me, and just giving me a new framework to work with was N.T. Wright. Right, um, uh, N.T. Wright was huge in that regard, um, and uh, but you know, people like helping me to helping me to engage conversations around um, the gospel and how how. How the gospel speaks to issues of race, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that, where you know, people, people like James Cohn and Willie Jennings and Jay Cameron Carter, um, people, uh, people like um, let's see, uh, Ebony Marshall Terman, um and uh, you know, let's even um and this not specifically to race, but you know, expanding my my vision and even giving me a heart for the pastoral vocation with someone like Eugene Peterson, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, some of these, uh, some of these voices were important for me in the journey. Um, and I could name more, but yeah, there's a
0: few. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother uh, podcast in and of itself. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Eugene Peterson wrote a lot, go look them up. <laughs> yeah,
0: th- th- that's, that's the whole thing. I mean, Eugene Peterson literally wrote a book that was, you should read these people, and that's the whole <laughs> content of the book. Like yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, that's definitely something. Now, I, I think yes, that that is. I, I think it's just those those signposts on the journey. And I think yeah. I think when people hear, you know, it's like music. When you hear something new and fresh, if you were to go and ask the person who made that who's uh, who's influencing you, it would be kind of you'd be like oh okay that that kind of makes sense but they express it in a fresh way and i think that's so yeah. so powerful so one of the things i really loved about you and just kind of speaking of this music and art uh, kind of understanding is is you're an artist yourself and we'll, we'll get to that uh in just a little while because you have been you have been poeting your way through the quarantine in a way that's blessed so many of yeah. us but. <laughs> the way that you have incorporated the arts into the life of your church, into your community. Mm. Um, And so we've, I know we've talked a little bit offline about this, but but how did that come about as something that you saw as integral? And then what are some of the things that you've been doing to engage
1: artists, which is so
0: much a part of the
1: community there in the East Village? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a large part of that was letting letting the neighborhood shape who we're who we become as a church rather than imposing our own way on the neighborhood and so when you um but also seeing that like there's a there's a synergy between um the things that god has put in me and in the others who are part of our team and what god was already doing in the neighborhood so right those those things are coming together so like if you know anything about the east village you know that like it's known. It's known for being a place where artists would come and just create, right? Um, you know, from from people like Bob Dylan, right, spending time in the neighborhood to uh, the whole the whole punk rock scene being the East Village and just young artists, uh, up and coming, um, even not far having having the beginnings of Def Jam Records, not far, right like mm-hmm. there's just a whole lot and, and like jazz and poetry and there's just so much in that neighborhood and so um you know one of our values is is we as a church we have a stated value of living beautifully that's just a value that we have and uh what we when we say that we that we um is we want to part of how we want to live as a community is to uh creatively generate um Generate beauty in the neighborhood, uh, just for beauty's sake, not for the sake of utility, but uh, just for the sake, because because God delights in beauty, because God is a creator, and so as part, what does it mean to reflect that aspect of God as we exist in the neighborhood? And so, um, you know, we uh, we we've done a couple uh, some different things. Um, from big big stuff so like we one of the and to go back to the comment i made before about this posture of listening one of the things that came through this process of listening early on was a relationship that was formed with um an art center that's been in the neighborhood for a long mm-hmm. time and um uh, they have several theaters in that center and um it's been a space for artists to Take up residence into so there's like apartments up there where artists live and do their work and there are studios and all that sort of sort of stuff, but uh we were able to end up building a relationship through a series of other relationships. We were able to build a relationship with a with a guy who runs one of the theaters and uh he it, it was it was so interesting when we uh started talking to him because as we're sitting in his office, um, he says to us you know. And these are his words. He says, "He says, I'm a I'm a lapsed Catholic, and I've been a part of the I've been a part of the progressive arts scene in New York since the '70s." And he mm-hmm. said, "One of the the greatest tragedies that we of the arts community have done is to sever ourselves from the faith community." Like he told us this, and then he said, um, "We need to be in conversation with each other," and so that just kind of started this whole conversation where um yeah we just started like talk about partnering together um and but well, one of the things that we've done and we've done it a couple times at this point is we've had we've hosted there a Christmas jazz concert. It's um, amazing. It was on Instagram true. Oh, it's so good. It's so I mean it's so, so much fun to put together but it's called Behold and um we've had just artists from our church bring, bring together their gifts to um, bring to that space and just putting a whole, whole night together of just beautiful music, beautiful art um, and having it be something. And we said to them like, we don't want to charge for it. We just want this to be something that is a gift to the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, we, and what we did was we just let a lot of people in the neighborhood know from, you know, school teachers and principals to crossing guards to, you know, like just come out and just enjoy and just be a part of this. And like, yeah, it's been something that to this point, it's like, oh, that's just one of the things that we do. Right. Um, And uh, so, you know, that was one thing. And another thing that we've done is just um, and this wasn't even. And it's still not technically like a church event that we do, but it's just something that a few of us started doing, (laughs) you know, as we started doing this thing called the listening room. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: uh, the listening room is a space where basically we get together in someone's living room uh, around a vinyl record player. And we have uh, people bring an album uh, for the night. And basically, it's it's sort of like they're offering their gift to the space and they're bringing part of who they are to the space. And the whole idea is, let's just listen to this album in community, side A and side B, um, and ask one question. What did you hear? And uh, it's a conversation that's not about critiquing the music uh, it, along the lines of like whether I like it or, or don't like it. It's just what are you hearing? What is this artist communicating right? like and and it just has just become a space where like all all sorts of people, people who are followers of Jesus, people who are part of other faith traditions, people who don't profess faith at all, but we're sitting in that space and we're having these conversations around art that lead to conversations around all types of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and we've just been doing that like once a month and it's just been a cool space. So those are a couple of things that we've
0: done. I love it. It's like an LP Lectio Divina. Just like what, what, what is the spirit doing through this? Now you describe this kind of this expression of the arts and and before you describe kind of this expansion of your own theology and this this kind of like understanding that God just, he puts trees in the garden that are just nice to look at. Well, why did you do that because that's the kind of god he is like it's almost that sort of thing how how has that been sort of a part of that expansion you know moving from this kind of gospel of me and my bible and jesus and my soul you know hopefully i'll, I'll fly away one day to this understanding mm-hmm. of, of, of embracing uh, kind of a wider uh, grasp uh, of the kingdom of god how is that uh, transpired for you and, and just kind of an understanding of what it means to live beautifully. I love that value for your community. That's really, really cool. Oh
1: uh, yeah. Um, I, I think what, one of the things that's happened for me in that regard and just kind of is even just a reshaping of how I understand who I am like mm-hmm. as a human being and that like, I, I don't exist, God didn't create me just for the sake of doing things right but there but there is something about just uh uh that, that is not connected to utility but it's just about being and it's just about the beauty of being human <laughs> that that is that that brings delight to god right and um and And so I think that like even that it's like it changes how I think about the kingdom of God and what that is and um and that it's like you know I think growing up for me i had this this aspect of like this perception of being a part of the church that it was all about like, okay, this is what we're doing in the world, and this is but but like never ever stop to just think of like the God who sings over us with loud singing mm-hmm. just because of pure mm-hmm. delight, right? That is separate from what we might do, but yeah. that just simply because. And, um, and, and, and I think that that, uh, that changes a lot about how we view ourselves and even how we view others um, and being, being able to see and recognize others as image bearers yeah. and that, that alone is, is beautiful that that alone is, um, gives them dignity and worth and value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, apart from anything that they do or don't do. And so, um, yeah, I don't even know if that answered your question. But. Oh, it does. And it's so,
0: it, I think you said it changes the way we view others, but it's sort of along that greatest commandment line. It changes the way we view Jesus. Absolutely. Like, what if Jesus actually likes you? And again, like people get all concerned about this becoming this, you know, emotionalist, sort of like that we're just moving into an impressionist period all over again, that we're going to romanticize the gospel. It's like, no, what if Jesus sat down to meals because it was inherent to what it means to live in the kingdom of God? And what if he actually ate good food at those tables and liked the people that he was sitting with? I think it changes that. And it's Mm -hmm. this sense of, the the things that god has put in the world for us to enjoy like god god didn't just do that and you know as as sort of a stumbling block and say like oh don't like that too much you know because one day you're going to go to heaven it's this sense mm-hmm. of how do we see god drawing near to us in the midst of all this and yes how do we how do we cultivate a heart that dies to ourselves but but yeah. within that so much of dying to ourselves is getting our focus off of ourselves right and so I, I think that that's so beautiful as you begin to see the image of God in others, and then really ask the, the next order question of, whose image is it? Is it, a, yeah. is it an austere, grumpy Jesus, or is it a, a joyful, yeah. brilliant Jesus who is telling these incredible stories? I, I think that's such a powerful framing.:
1: And and, and, you know, and then what is, it's like, what does it mean then to, if someone if being created in the image of God, if that is just beauty, right? Mm-hmm. What, does it, what does it then mean? to both cultivate and to protect mm. the beauty that God has written into creation, mm-hmm. the beauty that God has written into human beings. What does it look like to, to be people who are saying, you know what, when the, image, when the image of God is marred in another human being, right? Like there is something, there is something that should move me to want to stand against that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that is part of the work of living beautifully in the world is to um, to, to to tend to the beauty. Right. in, in all mm-hmm. things, like what does that mm-hmm. look like and, and both in human beings, in creation and that when it comes to the earth and how we how we relate to God's world. Right. Like that's that's a part of this whole thing.
0: I love what you just did there. So what you just did was you just seamlessly weaved these two things together. Genesis two: there are trees that are good for food. So we have mm-hmm. the sense of justice, of provision that there is enough for everyone. You have trees mm-hmm. that are just pleasing to look at, but there is a there is an inseparable nature to beauty and to justice. Yeah, this is you're talking about that the, the the intersection. You know, is, they're just they cannot be pulled apart. And so as you start to think about, you know, uh, what are some of the ways you see in our kind of wider American church, you know, our our unique and sort of obviously slightly narrow lens, what are some of the ways you feel that those things are being placed into tension? What are some of the ways that you think, like, mm-hmm. the church is not standing uh, on behalf of those whose image is being marred? Uh, we aren't living beautifully. And that, that I love that, that you framed it in that way. It's not... It's not that justice is one arm of the gospel, beauty is one. It's that you cannot have one without the other. Mm. Uh, and Jesus is an integrity of these of these things. We this is what humans do, right? We separate things. We break them down into their parts and think that we've explained them but what about putting them together again i think that's so powerful so what are some what are some things you see uh from your vantage point in new york city uh as, as a man with young girls as a man you know as a black man in america what are some of the areas that you see like there's a there's still a dissonance here between this justice and this beauty
1: yeah um where do i start <laughs> you know it, it's there's there's so much you tell the truth that's what I, yeah you know there's there's so much yeah. um i think and I think this bleeds into so many of the different areas that we could talk about but like mm-hmm. um the i I think where there's this deep rooting in this inability to, to see the humanity in each other and the, the ways that we end up objectifying, commodifying people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we talk about utility, right? Beauty and ut- versus utility and how people are things that are meant to be used and used up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is part of the fabric of the society in which we live. And if for some reason you, you are not useful, right, um, mm-hmm. then you are discarded. I think we see that a lot when it comes to uh, just conversations around the elderly and how they're mm-hmm being treated even even in the midst of conversations with the pandemic like yeah see you see that you see um people people saying that other people are disposable right mm-hmm. um yeah. and it has it has everything to do with this thing about utility mm-hmm. right um and not being able to see beauty not being able to see image right yeah uh, I think that like um you know, even when we talk about you know, the conversations around race in America, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there's so much there's so much layer there, even around the commodification of bodies. Right. That's way goes goes back to our foundations as a country. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, people, people are no longer people. They are they are cattle right they are people are no longer people that and and so um and even just kind of but yeah we could we could trace through history uh how that has developed um over time and how that has changed form over time where you have um just the the movement from uh chattel slavery right into into the different the different forms of Dehumanization, right? Of of keeping people locked out from the things that would, the things that allow humanity to flourish and thrive, right? And so, um, I, I just I think about I think about that, and I think about the ways that uh, that has just been so deeply embedded into American life, where we can't even see it. It's almost like there's there's an we haven't dealt with it. And part, of, and part of the reason why we haven't dealt with it is because it's been intentionally masked so that we can't see it, mm-hmm. right um, so that we can identify um, the ways that this is continuing to happen, right? whether that be in our prison system with mass incarceration, with the ways that black and brown black and brown folks are just disproportionately caged. Right? Mm-hmm. What do you you don't you don't throw humans in cages, right? That's not like that is not that is not humane, mm-hmm. and so, um, but that that's also a part of this. Like, you know, how how are we viewing human beings? Are we seeing beauty? Are we seeing image? And even even the utility question too, because it's like, mm-hmm. um, what happens when when you put masses of people in our prison system? Well, according, right, according to uh, the 13th Amendment, they can still be used for, for slave labor. It is legal. Right. Like it, is, it is allowed, right? And so when you think about that and you think about how our prison system developed from our system of slavery, like you can actually read about how it developed from that point yeah. um, and how intentional all of this has been. Mm-hmm. And then you ask yourself the question, why is it that one in three black men are behind bars? Why is that? Why, why is that a reality in the country that we live in? Is that just because black people are worse people? Black people are all criminal? Or is there something that is inherently embedded into the system that has that, that is it's set up? It's doing what it was designed to do. Right. The system is working. right? Mm-hmm. It, it's doing what it was designed to do. And so it's just like we got to think we got to think deeply about these things and it does it like you said it, it has everything to do with beauty It's justice yeah. and beauty are so tied together um i don't know like i feel like there's so there's so much we could say about this yeah. and and i don't i don't know how much space we have <laughs> but so-
0: one of the things, and this is it's it's far too predictable, and you know I, I'm almost sorry to have to to ask you this question, but but basically something happens. Amad Arbery happens. Mm-hmm. Brianna Taylor, you know, Amad Arbery is 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 hunted and and, and lynched. Brianna Taylor is killed in her home, and a whole yes, it, on some level, it could be a horrible accident if it weren't such a part of a pattern. It seems to exhibit itself but but the the other part of that pattern is you have this sort of virtue signaling online you know people that are you know are like oh you know we're going to say their name and you know that kind of stuff which i i think there's there's some power to that like i think it's important and then it sort of dies down but then you have this other reaction where you know and i don't want to i i don't want to um propose ill motivations on the part of of the people we give voice to but they basically say well you know, I, I didn't buy slaves. I, I didn't, yeah. you know, I, I haven't had anything given to me in my life. You know, these are typically white people. Um, what, what, like, what does all this have to do with me? Why is, why are people seemingly talking about white privilege? Why are they talking about these kinds of things as if I had something to do with it? And, and, uh, you know, the, the piece that I find so grievous is just the refusal as, as we've sort of been talking about, even like church planting, like the first posture is listening. It's not telling. Mm -hmm. And and the piece I find so grievous is this sort of like this, this kind of secondary wounding that we do, where we have a whole segment of, you know, of of our black brothers and sisters in these specific scenarios that are saying, are you seeing our pain? Are you Mm -hmm. seeing this? And then people are coming along like Job's friends and being like, actually, here's the reasons for your pain. And, And so I kind of a long winded way of asking the question, what would you say to those people? That their immediate response is, well, it's not. Is this is overblown, or this is this is just a a progressive uh, sort of talking point that has bled its way mm-hmm. into the church and is is somehow separate from the quote unquote air quotes real gospel. Um, I think it's such a pressing yeah. question for discipleship in our day. So, Drew, I'd love just to yeah. hear your perspective. And I know it's a it's a heavy question. Um, so please be honest you know as it, it as much as you're willing yeah. to be to be honest cuz i think that's the that's the real you know we need the real
1: yeah sometimes you know sometimes i get the and as like sometimes i get as a black man as a black uh, as a as a person who moves through the world in a black body right mm. i get the sense that many, that, that, many, that many white folks think that black people love to talk about race
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it brings us joy. Because it's something that like, for whatever reason, that this is just what people of color like to talk about. We don't like talking about this. We talk about it because this is survival like this is this is not this is not another issue right for us this is life and so i think that like the recognition that like like say if you come to somebody you've been deeply hurt and you come to somebody and you tell your story and they tell you that your story isn't true mm. Right, like, Mm -hmm. what 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 does that do to you? Have you like? I want you to think about if you've ever been in a situation before, where some where 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 you are like, I I just need some. I I I am telling my story, right? And then someone, even if you didn't invite them to tell you whether your story is true or not, they volunteer, Right. right? Right? Oh, that's that's something's made up or something's overblown. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like what what I hear and, and I've heard I've heard I've heard people with good intentions do this all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this this move of either trying to exonerate themselves from from racism, like that they're not a part of the whole thing, that it's something over there or it was just something in the past. Um, I, I've heard people do it where where they'll make that move to I'm just sharing something and then my story is met with I need white approval mm. like my like it's some it somehow needs to be approved to by whiteness to be deemed true mm. and like I it's it's frustrating ian it yeah. is um it is is something that like honestly it's a it's a the re- I, I would say that the reason—and you use the word—but that the reason that that uh, this happens is that this is a part of the discipleship and formation of mm-hmm. of what it means to be racialized in America. It's mm-hmm. to it's to it's to have an ear that is trained to to not take seriously the voices and the stories and the cries of Black people. Mm-hmm. Like, that—that that is part of racial formation, of formation in what we would call whiteness. And when I use the term whiteness, I'm not talking about whiteness as skin color. I'm talking about whiteness as a way in which you move through the world. Mm-hmm. It, it's, the Bible it's,
0: describes them as powers and principalities. Right? Powers and principalities,
1: right? right. It's, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, Will, I, I referred to Willie Jennings earlier and he talks about whiteness <laughs> as um this power that moves that where where you were where it's all about um possession ownership over right um this uh, of the space belongs to me that could be a physical space or a conversational space or whatever space that is, it's my space. Right. Um, and if anybody tries to get into that space, right, they are intruding on something that is inherently mine. Right. And so, um, that, yeah. And, and so when, and, and when you're formed in that sort of way and and that's something that is like, that is just in the air. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, from the founding of the country, right. From the beginnings, it's like, you don't think it's going to affect the way that you're formed that that this nation forms people when you move into a place that is already inhabited by people who have been here for a long long time and to just step onto that land and to say this place belongs to us mm-hmm. and then add on to that because god gave it to us mm-hmm. then you're theologizing around it right mm-hmm. and then you create a theology that that you know, undergirds, um, Mm -hmm. this whole idea of white supremacy, um, and a racialization of things. And, um, yeah, it's really, and so as a, as a black person sharing my story, you got to recognize that, like, my story has got to penetrate through all that. Like it's gotta, it's gotta penetrate through all of those things to get, to, to ever get to a heart that's soft. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so much of it is is not it's not that people are there are some folks that do, but not everybody's walking around with intentions of like blocking people out. But you got to understand that that is that is a part of the formation. And so unless there is a counter formation in a different way, uh, an intentional re- reformation around how we are, how we understand ourselves in the world how we how we see and recognize our brothers and sisters of color our understandings of what it means to be human and and the fact that like um you know what that we are not we are not isolated beings we are not disconnected beings that like make what affects one that, affects right? all like yeah and 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 all of that has got to be undone that and so much more has to be undone. If there's ever going to be um, a formation in a different direction that is really going to allow us to move forward in any significant ways. Like, and, and, and my, as a, as a pastor, Mm -hmm. right. My first heart is to look at the church and to say, the church has unfortunately been one of those systems that we talk about yeah. um, that has propped up and propagated racism
0: mm-hmm. and white
1: supremacy mm-hmm. through theology and practice, right um, and the wor- there's got like the work to really undo a lot of that and to to see that change is like that's, that's stuff that the spirit of God's got to do. That's when we talk mm-hmm. about regeneration, rebirth, yeah. like we need to be born again, like point blank.
0: Yep. And, and I think that drew what you're pointing at. And I, I, I love the way that you, that you phrased that. Cause I think it's so important for us to just listen and just to hear. Um, and I think, you know, as you, as you sort of, you know, think about the ways that, white supremacy has been woven into the fabric of the church. You know, we, we, we talked about this in our church a couple months ago, but when Jonathan Edwards, one of the heroes of the, the American, you know, sort of revival movement, you know, wrote a sermon on the back of a receipt for a young girl, like bought a human being. And on the other side of that piece of paper, because he, you know, didn't have access to an office depot, like writes a sermon down that he's going to preach to the people of God. Like this yeah. is in micro... Exactly the way that these two things are are the same side of one coin, and mm-hmm. I think for us and, and drew what you're saying too I, I think it's so important for us and as I talk to you know my sort of white brothers and sisters of the faith you know i I read a piece by Dante Stewart uh, following the Ahmad Arbery. and he just said you know one of the things he said so plainly and I just thought it was such a a poignant way of putting it is that white supremacy is not you know, it, it, it's black people's burdens in many ways. They bear the brunt and the grief of it, but it's white people's problem. And until we're willing yeah, to name it, and it, this is this is where we sort of get back to our conversation, you know, about like, what is the gospel? Well, well even if you just believe the gospel is about my sins and confessing Jesus, the only way to, con- to receive grace in those places is to bring them into the light in the first place. Absolutely. And so there's this, there's this strange, almost, um, it's completely undermining to our faith that we are unwilling to, to at least listen. And I think Drew, you, you've you've really been a guide on that. And I, I also, Mm. I'm I'm sensitive to the dynamics of just like, okay, um, you know, you're a black man, Drew, let's talk about race. Um, I think that that's, you know, so overblown, but I think for us as a community, uh, if we can continue to be forage you know forging ears that listen and cultivating hearts that are soft not just immediately get defenses up that's so important in this moment mm. but drew thank you uh you know again i know that that's that that gets into some some heavy heavy territory and i just appreciate you just yeah speaking your heart yeah, telling no.
1: the truth. yeah man and um that's it is. It's. 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 It's stuff that you get. On one hand, and like I'm tired of talking about it. I wish we didn't have to talk about it. Um. But there's also the part of me that's like, but I'm not gonna stop, right? Because this is. This. This, this is. This is. What like for, for me to love my, my fellow brothers and sisters of color, Mm -hmm. right. Like I realized what, one of the things I recognize about my own self is that like, you know, I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of, of, of speaking in white spaces. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I like, I'm going to ask myself the question, what is it? What does it actually actually look like for me to use the voice that I have Mm -hmm. for the sake of my brothers and sisters? Right. Like, what does that look like? Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's not for the purpose of like, Oh, we need like, I'm going to, I, I don't I'm, I hope this doesn't whatever i'm just gonna say like i'm not i don't need i don't i don't need i don't need white people to approve of me or to accept me right um the reason that i say these things is because uh and, and that i believe it's so necessary is because one i just i i i believe i believe the gospel right yes i believe know. i believe that the gospel like, if I'm not, if, I, if I'm not sh- speaking on these things, then am I, then am I, then I honestly, I'm asking myself the question, am I really following Jesus? Mm-hmm. Because we have to think about it in, in the sense of like, when we say we follow Jesus, that is always, that is, that always takes place in some kind of context, in some kind of space, right? And when you reckon with the American context when you reckon with our history, when you reckon with where we have been and where we are at, I don't know how we can claim to be followers of of a savior who said of himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to bring freedom to the captives, to liberate the oppressed, right? How can we follow that savior and have nothing to say to ra- racial violence, mm. like how, like th- those two things don't don't jive, right? Mm. and so for me, it's like if I'm going to follow Jesus, this is part of this is part of the direction I got to go, right yeah. this is part of the way I have to walk, and uh it, you know so so one, yeah, like I, I say it because I believe the gospel, and two, I do it because like I love y'all, I do. And 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 I and I really I really believe that um, when we talk about salvation, right? We talk about the saving work of Jesus. I believe that <laughs> white people need to be saved from whiteness. Mm. Like I believe that there is a salvation that's necessary in that regard, right mm-hmm. that there is a saving a liberating a freedom that God wants to bring right um to really free to really free folks from from moving through the world in that way so that it actually frees us to love our neighbors well like that I think that's the freedom that that's there um and, and so it's, it's out of a heart of love that I speak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, there's, there, there are those two things that I carry.
0: Right? I think it's so important, Drew. And, and let me just provide some context for people. If, you, if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not, that's not in the Bible. It's not a part of it. Romans one, the gospel is the power of salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. You know, Paul in Galatians opposes Peter to his face because this is an issue of idolatry. Peter is reverting back to his Jewish comfort and the place where he knows and he's, he's not eating with Gentile brothers and sisters because he's not quite sure what the, the implications of the gospel is. And, and Paul says of it, he says, I opposed him to his face. Uh, Peter and Paul, these two people that have seen the risen Christ, are having a disagreement about what it means to be the people of God. And Drew, you're framing that for us so much. This is about idolatry and it's about, you know, not about identity. Again, people hear this conversation, they're like, well, am I, am I being told I'm a bad person because I'm a white person? No. What, what we're describing is an idol of whiteness that has pervaded American culture. And it, again, consistently shows itself in the light, you know, now with cell phone cameras, even more so and then get shoved back into the darkness. And so all we're trying to, um, trying to sort of point to, and Drew, you're articulating this uh, just so poignantly for us is that we have to be willing to pay attention to these things. And if, if nothing else, my friends and my brothers and sisters, if nothing else to listen to people who are crying out in pain and saying, this hurts, um, And so I think it's so important. I I thank you for, for taking us on that, that journey. Cause again, I, I know, like, I think you said it well too. I'm tired, (laughs) frankly, like I'm tired of talking about this. And, you know, I I think that's such a, a, you know, an important thing to remember. It's not something it's like, oh, we get to, you know, this is such a jovial conversation. We get to have this again. I do want to switch gears uh, slightly, uh, because I, I do think Drew is so important that you know again people get to to hear some of the uh, some of the the writing that you've been doing, and so I want to point them to that. Yeah, but yeah. you've been you've been doing some some uh, poetic reflections, uh, posting them on Facebook. Are, are there any other places those things live right now? Uh,
1: no, not right okay, now. Well, okay,
0: we'll edit that out, and I'll 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 tell people to go to Facebook. So. Drew, you've been doing some writing Instagram, uh, yeah. on Instagram and on Facebook, so you can find if you search Drew Jackson, you can find some of those things there. Um, but just your sense for your pastoral work and poetry, what wh- what are the collisions of those two things? Because again, I think I think so many people think of sermons as prose, and you know, poetry is something mm-hmm. that's you know, again, we've been talking about this kind of utilitarianism, this this sense of beauty. Yeah. How have you kind of come on to this? Uh, this, this aspiring vocation as, as not only pastor and planter and peacemaker, but as, as poet.
1: Um, so yeah, honestly, like, I mean, I've always loved, like I've always, there's always been something in me that has had a bend toward the arts. Right. Um, and i got that i got that from my mom like mm-hmm. she was a writer she yeah just a lot of just that was just in her but um I, honestly i didn't i didn't do much writing like of poetry um until very recently mm-hmm. uh, i mean I, I guess with the exception of i did there was a point where i was writing a lot of like hip hop in college yes. i would just write yes. like and by the way, hip hop is poetry. <laughs>
0: yes, and but, uh, and prophetic literature, no less. Prophetic literature. That's for another. That's for another podcast as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, honestly, recently this is something that I've started to to pick up in the way that I'm doing it now, mm-hmm. and it was more of just sitting sitting in my apartment because I can't go anywhere else, <laughs> and like. Uh, it, it what it became for me was a practice in paying attention, mm-hmm. right? Which if you read any poetry and, it, and you're familiar with like Mary Oliver, right? She always talks about p- paying as, as prayer as paying attention, yeah. right? She has a line where she says, I don't know how to pray, but I know how to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Right. And which I love. And, and I think poetry in that sense, for me, if it's a, if it's, a practice of pray, paying attention than it is a prayerful practice for me, right? Mm. Where, especially during this time of quarantine, like there's so much that that can be happening underneath the surface for us that we're not paying attention to. Um, and I think that it's important for, for all of us to have different practices that would allow us to to slow to pay attention to our emotions, to pay attention to the things that are trying to rise to the surface, um, poetry has become that for me, and mm-hmm. um, and it's also become like Ian, you'll get this because you're a preacher, right? But I I do I write all the time because I'm writing sermons and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a difference when I'm writing poetry. Because I'm doing writing that I don't, that doesn't require an explanation, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't, like, I'm not trying to convince somebody of anything or explain or break down things. It's just, I'm just writing. Mm -hmm. And for me, there is actually a, a, a freedom in that where I can just put words on the paper and it's not, and I'm not thinking about are they going to get this? Are they not going to get this? Are they going to do this? Mm-hmm. Are they like, like, you know, <laughs> which I think when you're doing a certain, when you're writing a sermon, you're thinking about those things you're yeah. thinking about, you know? So I think in that way, poetry has been a free, something that's freeing for me where it's just like, you know what, I'm just writing this and that's what it is. And if yeah. you don't get it, yeah. that's fine. Then it wasn't, it wasn't for you and that's fine. Right. You know? And, uh, I say in one of the poems I wrote, I I just talk about the the art of po- like writing poetry. I say I, I compare it to like uh, I say like like the parables of the Nazarene. It re- it requires no explanation, only contemplation. Right, mm-hmm. right, and it's just it's meant to it's meant to bring you into a place of contemplation, into the contemplative, and not into the rational explanation of things. And so uh, that's that's one thing that. I also just love about this act, this art of writing poetry.
0: Um, Yeah, and you stand in such a tradition of poet preachers, you know, you know, the Jared Manley Hopkins, the the Eugene Petersons, the the, uh, Howard Thurman, you know, like really in this space where, and Eugene Peterson talks about this, like poets and preachers share a reverence for words. And Mm -hmm. so, Ecclesia, we say that words create worlds, you know, like that sense of, Uh, that that grasp of the possible poem about that (laughs) yes (laughs) yes yeah and uh i think that that uh, that again sort of to take this conversation full circle because i i I think we can do this all day uh but just where where life and justice and beauty all merge jesus has been standing there all along
1: Mm. and saying
0: welcome and I think Drew, your 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 life and your witness, and your, the, the 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 angle with which you refract the the, the big beautiful kingdom of the uh, of the gospel, um, you know, is such a witness to that. Uh, and so I'm so excited that you're going to be sharing with our community. So excited just for them to to get to glimpse a, a different voice. And I'm sure they they grow weary of mine. Um, as as all of my mom seemed to do, but, uh, Drew, just really grateful for you and for your community. And, uh, just want to say thank you so much for joining us and friends. I hope that this conversation has been, uh, just illuminating in a sense of uh, on a myriad of different things, but also mostly illuminating into a a little bit of who Drew is as much as you can get a, a glimpse of that over a, a zoom podcast, audio recording, um, as much as you can grasp that, uh, just just sense that there is a, a profound love that is addressing you as you sit in your living room on a Sunday morning. And that, um, that's such a gift to me as the pastor of, of this church and somebody who loves the people I know Drew is going to be communicating with to know uh, that, that that person loves them like I do is, is a gift. So thank you, Drew. Thanks for your time.
1: And uh, yeah, man, thanks thank so much. You. and I can't, I can't wait to, to actually get down there.